Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April the 4th, 2018, and this is episode 2196 of the Survival Podcast. Today is Wednesday, that's interview day. We have returned to that. Hopefully we'll have a good, smooth interview experience. My guest today is John Lovell, founder of the Warrior Poet Society. He is here, here today to talk to us about the fighting mindset of the warrior poet. John is the founder of the Warrior Poet Society. He's also a former Army Ranger from the 2nd Battalion, a tactical instructor, poet, and family man that cares about the future of the, his family, the country, and the world as a whole. He joins us today to discuss tactics, strategy, and philosophy of self-defense and having a fighting, uh, positive fighter mindset. He's a credentialed full-time tactics and firearms instructor and is an NRA instructor. Teaches over 20 different classes, including night vision, low-light tactics, room clearing, defensive pistol courses, defensive carbine and rifle courses, home defense classes, NRA classes, and more. He's a war veteran, former member of Special Operations, with numerous uh, combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan. His overseas experience also entails having served as a missionary to Central America for four years. Holds a BA in business. And more than an instructor, John considers himself a student of war, philosophy, theology, and history. When he's not teaching, training, or spending time with his family, you will likely find him reading. Again, he's the founder of the Warrior Poet Society, founded with reverence for this old quote. The state that separates its scholars from its warriors will have its thinking done by cowards and its fighting done by fools. It should be a great interview. We will have him with us in just a moment. Before we bring John on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. You can find him at Directive21.com. Again, his website, Directive21.com. You might be surprised by this, but what we can get from Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason is Berkey Water Filtration Systems. He's got a whole new discount arrangement with Berkey for you guys that are MSB members, by the way. You'll want to check that out if you've been considering a Berkey. And if you're going to get a Berkey, get it from the one, the original, the only Berkey guy. There's there's a lot of people that sell Berkeys, but there's only one Berkey guy. You should have a trademark on that or something by now. Anyway, Jeff is a madman at customer service. He just takes care of people, always has and always will. He is one of the largest dealers of Berkey products in the world, so he gets great pricing and passes that along to you. He also has a lot of other really cool stuff for your prepping needs. You can find it all at Directive21.com. Next up today, KnifeKits.com. You know, making knives is one of those kind of things that's kind of like voodoo if you don't know what you're doing. Like, wow, oh, he makes knives, you know, like it's a superpower or something. And, man, I'll tell you what, the guys that start with raw steel and forge it and all that other stuff, it really is uh, It's an art. It absolutely is. But you don't have to start at that extreme level. You can start at a kit level where you get basically a blank that's already formed into the knife that you really want it to be. It's not real sharp or anything yet. It ain't got any handles on it. It doesn't have any bolsters and pins and all that stuff. But you go ahead and you get that stuff, and you finish the knife out. You give it its final edge and what have you, and you take that first step into becoming a knife maker. If you've been doing that a while and you want to go on to that higher level, they have all the raw materials you could want as well. Exotic handle materials like Mammoth Tusk. I, I even have a knife made with Mammoth Tusk handle. And that Mammoth Tusk handle came from KnifeKits.com and the maker, of course, Patrick Roman of MT Knives. 
It's a great, great hobby to take a look at, get into. Great father-son, father-daughter, mother-son, etc. project. If you don't know what you're doing, they got books and DVDs to help you along the way. Check them out today at KnifeKits.com. Remember, they also do a discount for members of the MSB. Before we get uh, John on, let's take a look at the year in history. You're up to the year 117 A.D. We have this year the death of Trajan, the emperor. In the summer of this year, Trajan begins traveling back to Italy to recover from his exhaustion and illness. On the way, he suffers a stroke and dies in what is modern-day Turkey. Before his death, he adopts his nephew, Hadrian, and names him his heir. Hadrian is from Spain like Trajan and is mainly due to the Trajan's successful reign. The Senate accepted a non-Roman as an emperor. Trajan will be remembered as the greatest emperor other than Augustus and was the last emperor to expand the empire. Hadrian immediately sent a letter to curry favor with the Senate and gave a standard bonus to the army. After strengthening his position, he makes peace with Parthia and returns all conquered lands to them. My take by David Verne. Hadrian had a much different mindset than his uncle Trajan. Trajan was a conqueror and expanded Rome to its greatest limits, but Hadrian recognized the flaw in the strategy. Hadrian saw the empire as a society of mutual support and culture, not as a people ruling over subjugated territories, and focused on protecting the empire and helping provinces prosper. He did this by integrating the empire, by encouraging a universal Greek culture under Roman guidance, and strengthening the borders and fortifications. The military officers would grow to dislike him because of his defensive posture, but the empire would greatly benefit from his reign. Yeah, you know, it. it, it, it I remember the lead-up to the first Gulf War, And I remember drill sergeants that we had that even though we were going to get done in time to maybe go, and we did, uh, they knew they wouldn't. They would be on the trail, as they call it. And most of the drill sergeants that we had, even though we were uh, not in infantry MOS, they were infantry. And they were angry. They were angry because they knew there would be a war, and they knew they wouldn't get to go. They wanted that opportunity to do what they had trained to do. And you can understand that, I guess. But it makes me, when I, when I hear that from people who have not yet served in combat, think of a quote by one of my favorite people from history, Dwight Eisenhower. Dwight Eisenhower, arguably the greatest general in the United States military in modern times, who commanded the Allied forces in World War II, said of war, I hate war is only a soldier who has lived at Ken. Only as one who has seen its brutality, its futility, its stupidity. Thing is, these men that wanted to go out and conquest were men who had seen war in its brutality, its futility, and its stupidity. The thing is, they hadn't known defeat. They had not known defeat under Trajan. What they did, every time they did it, they did it well, they got it done. The other difference is they had far less of a, a reverence and value for human life at this time than we do today. So when the general went in and lost a hundred of his men, eh, whatever, when one of them broke down in the middle of the fight and didn't end up getting killed but basically deserted and they put a spear through him to punish him, which is a pretty good way to punish somebody, I guess, right? Eh, it's just what you do. There was really a turning point in how... Nations viewed war, and it, commanders at least began to have a reverence and respect for the lives of their men. And it really took place between World War One and World War Two. World War One was kind of the last war fought with the old 
imperialistic mentality. The, the men were just there to die. And as long as you kill more of theirs than they did of yours, yeah, it's okay. There's a lot, there was a lot of that turn got made in World War I, but by the time we got World War II, that had been done pretty much on all sides. It's why even in the worst of the worst, all sides in something as horrific as World War II, stay true to the agreement to not gas each other. And the reason was war from you know this time and further back, 117 A.D., all the way up until about the first parts of this change started around the time of the American Civil War in the 1860s. There was a limited amount of death each side could cause to each other before, yeah, we're, we're winning and we're going to move forward and the other side's losing and going to give up. There was no mechanization to war. War was siege warfare and things like that. In World War One, these this mentality that had been thousands of years old at this point of formations and attack didn't just run into guerrilla warfare, it, run into, it ran into mechanized warfare. And death on a level that had never seen been seen before on, you know, let's say in a conflict on both sides happened. And I wonder had these men that were angry with Hadrian for taking a defensive posture, I wonder if they had seen war like that on Omaha Beach in Normandy. I wonder if they'd seen that, if that had been their taste of war, if they would have been so upset about defensive posture. Just my thoughts. Good thing to reflect on today as we're about to bring our special guest on. Before we do, let me remind you guys real quick that uh, we do have a sale going on on MSB, the Member Support Brigade. You can get that for $30 a year and lock that rate in for life with the discount code TSP18, TSP18. You use that code online or in the other, any of the other various methods of signing up, you can uh, take the discount. And uh, we, we look forward to bringing you on as a new member. That's all I'll say about that today so we can go ahead and get our special guest on. And at this time, I'd like to introduce our special guest, John Lovell, uh, who, again, is the founder of Warrior Poet Society. And he's here today to talk to us about the winning fighter mindset. With that, hey, John, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. John, I've already let people know kind of a little bit about your background, some of the stuff off your bio, and uh, what we're here to talk about today being kind of the uh, the winning fighter mindset and the perspective you have as the founder of the Warrior Poet Society. But so the audience can get kind of know who you are, who John is as a person. Take us back to like, I don't know, you're in high school as a junior or something, spacing out in study hall, checking some girl out or something, and trying to figure out, well, like, what the heck am I going to do with my life? And how, how do you go from there to where you are today, kind of in the elevator speech mode? So this is the long walks on the beach kind of question, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, high school, let's not go there. I was kind of a punk in high school. I, <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't have liked me in high school. Just a chip on my shoulder. I was big in the wrestling scene and just kind of libertine, uh, living for... Uh, yeah, hedonist, uh, I'd say, and just uh, thought I knew a lot. Ah, let's just call it every high schooler everywhere. You think you figured a lot out, and you're like, man, I don't have anything figured out. Stumbled into college, whatever drunken, debauched fiasco that was. Ended up going into the military, uh, just kind of all of a sudden I had this uh, existential make-a-mark purpose type thing, uh, uh I joined the military for a lot of just different reasons, and all of those kind of uh, fade into fuzzy posterity, and now it's just kind of like uh, that, anyway, helped forge who I was, but uh, just uh, who I am is 
uh, kind of that warrior aspect, that warrior side of I feel like I've been fighting my whole life, just whether it was wrestling or jiu-jitsu or uh, military special operations. And now in the capacity, I am a firearms and tactics instructor. That's kind of my day job. I travel around the country teaching, uh, you know, firearms tactics type of stuff. There's the warrior side and then the, the poet side. Of it. It, it, it's funny, as soon as you uh, I are in those circles and you're, I guess, a, a fighter and especially an instructor and ex-special operations guy, everyone wants to kind of push you into this category where, you know, you, I, I don't know, it's this John Wayne-ish stereotype where you're not like having tickle fights with the misses and you know, playing dinosaurs with the kids and just you're a normal human being and you love people and, you know, you're just, uh, you're just a normal dude uh, who wants to leave the world a better place than when you found it. You want to do the right thing. And that's, that's the poet side. We're warrior poets, you know. So and anyway, uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you kind of talked a little bit about why you joined the military. I mean, I remember when, when I joined, it was, well, I live in this podunk town. I don't know what the heck I want to do with myself. I don't want to go to college because school bored me to death. And here's something I can do to get out of here. And I, I think much like you, it really kind of gave me a sense of purpose in my life. And I took a lot of things away from it. What would you say? was the most important thing in your military experience and, and what it taught you and, and kind of shaped your life going forward? Man, that's a tough question. I had no real capacity for what personal limits really were and how that fleshed out. I guess wrestling really did introduce me to some of that. But if I hadn't have gone through the hell I put myself through in wrestling, I probably never would have tried out for um, special ops or military in general. So uh, that, that was pretty formative. Uh, let's see, for for military. Um, gosh, I'm drawing a blank. How, how about dealing with the nature of fear as well? I mean, uh, when you think you're going to die so often, uh, <laughs> you're pretty sure they're like, all right, we're going into this objective and there's 30 million Al-Qaeda waiting with you know, automatic weapons, you're surely going to die. It ends up being a dude, like, alone and in a village, you know, just tending a goat, and you roll in heavy thinking, this is it. It wasn't. Either way, you're still, whether it was they were dry holes or whether it legitimately was uh, fighting the bad guy, you're always amping up, gearing up for this altercation, which you may lose your life. So, Really, the soldier maybe sees his own death, you know, thousands of times. And what that can do is, one, really help you in dealing with fear in general, and that translates over generally into all aspects of life. But it also, in facing death, forces you to really answer a lot of harder philosophical questions, uh, I suppose. So, um, yeah, let's... You have a different perspective in the way that you see world. This is why a lot of military dudes who, you know, leave the military and end up going into uh, college have an entirely different mindset than the average college student. They're almost disconnected. They have far more in tune with their professors and still so even past professors in some areas of life experience. Uh, you know, my dad would always laugh and say, there's something about putting on a uniform that makes, a, makes somebody want to get married. And, and there's something as well where you're, 
your perspectives shift dramatically. You're ruined for the rest of your life in terms of uh, your naive kind of notion that the world is this really nice, gentle place. Uh, you've seen a rougher side, and that leaves an indelible mark, I suppose. No, I would, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I'd spent most of my military service in Central America, and it, you know, it's not a, it wasn't a combat theater, but seeing people live at the edge of, of you know, sustainable existence, the, the, the poverty that people lived in that, that frankly didn't even really know there was a, an alternative to it. And then I think, I mean, for me, it was this uh, a sense of purpose and a sense of cohesion where, like, one of my biggest challenges when I got out of the, the military, and I think a lot of soldiers deal with this, is nobody knows what the hell they're doing. Right. So you, yeah. even when you go to a P, even when you go to like a PX, like a grocery store on base, you know, um, even spouses understand like how to stand in a line properly and what have you and leave a gap and things like that. And like it just seems like you're standing in complete chaos. I mean, I don't know how that reentry was for you, but I mean, I I ended up taking about a 1,300 mile walk uh, on an Appalachian Trail to get my head together because That's I realized. Idea. I realized, like, okay, you think everybody else is the problem? No, it's you. You don't. You don't. <laughs> you don't fit in normal society anymore, and you need to go sort some things out because this is what you have. And it was a, uh, it was a unique experience coming back in. What was it like for you when you left? Sure. So I thought I was like killing it with civilian reintegration, but but I approached it like pretty hardcore, like it was a mission, like. Uh, my, my friends, you know, I, I immediately, you know, I'm very outgoing, trying to develop a lot of new relationships. And, and uh, I, I guess I was trying to really integrate. I wasn't isolating. I wasn't saying these people are idiots and they don't think like me and they don't know what I do or, or haven't seen what I've seen. I'm like, no, immediately I'm like, all right, hey, the next season is that of a civilian Become the best civilian you can. <laughs> what you did before is irrelevant. What matters now is, is this. But uh, I was pretty hardcore, like initiating just social hangouts, you know, kind of like uh, we'd be hanging out after, you know, some event in college. And we're like, all right, hey, everybody want to come over to my house and make it hot dogs. We're growing out hot dogs. And like I was just so hardcore, forcible, I made folks hang out with me. Just I was like super hardcore. And I, in my head, I was like, I'm just a normal civilian here, and to, to them, I was like G.I. Joe on speed. Uh, <laughs> so it's funny to kind of get their testimonies of what early John, fresh out of the military, was like, you know. Of, uh, you know, I was, I was in the combat theater months before, so to them, it looked like I had some severe screws loose, severe <laughs> screws loose. And to me, I'm like, I'm one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Needless to say, I'm pretty chill and pretty normal-ish now, or or I just have still remain to have very very gracious friends. But uh, <laughs> there's my reintegration stuff. So, what you know, thinking about that time, what made you decide to leave the military? Um, it's gonna sound crazy to you, uh, but uh, two big things. One is I just got really burned out on war. It was a special operations group. And yeah, everybody was, you know, doing dangerous stuff. But us, we, we may do two different missions in the night, uh, you know, or, or, you know, just continuous missions day after day after day. 
and just the drool of uh, continuously getting that amped up for so long. Just So when I got into Ranger Battalion, uh, by the time I was getting out uh, after, you know, five combat tours, so there's guys who've done a lot more than me, but still, um, the by the time I was getting out, my entire leadership structure had gotten out. Everyone had left. Uh, so everyone just got really burned out. You can only do war for so long before it starts taking a really heavy emotional toll. And, you know, there's a shelf life to a soldier that I don't think people recommend. There is a certain shelf life. Certain people of different constitutions have a longer shelf life. But regardless, uh, you know, that, and that's just something I think. that That's one piece. If I was just tired of war. And I wanted a life apart from war. Second, uh, secondarily, is I got really tired of bureaucracy. I got very, very sick of just do this because of that's the way we do it. And it just drove me nuts. So, um, anyway, I know I was shielded by that a good bit by just where I was located. But still, uh, the bureaucracy. I, I describe myself as a man that was in the military. I was never really a military man. Does that make sense? No, that makes perfect sense. I, I, when I joined, it was like, I thought about it long term. I came from a military family. I picked an MOS that was 60% of strength so that you had a fast track to E5 if you had your shit straight. And I thought I was going to stay yeah. in. And after about like, oh, I don't know, basic, I said, you know what? This is going to be a great three years. <laughs> I was like, yeah. this is going to be a great, I'm going to go overseas. I'm going to have an adventure. I'm going to learn a skill. But when it's over, I'm, I'm not. I'm not cut out for sticking around in this thing. Uh, I just knew. Yeah, like, you saw the you saw the commercial, right? You yeah. saw the commercial of like, ooh, there's boats and helicopters. I'm going to jump out of planes. Yeah, I'm going to jump out of airplanes and don't those dress uniforms that I'm going to wear once a year look great? And I mean, that was like, you know, about you know about the time you're like two weeks into my permanent duty station in Panama, crawling around in mud trying to pull a truck out, some idiot wrecked. Uh, it was like, yeah, this is, you know what, and I wasn't even upset about it. It's like, this is great, but, you know, I, I I was a short timer three weeks out of basic in my head. Like, this is a thing that I'm doing and I'm done, <laughs> right? Like, this is, you know, I'm, yeah. and I, I did enjoy a lot of it, but I knew that, like, I can't make my life this way. And uh, so right. I get exactly what you're saying. Um, so when you get out, you have to figure out what the heck you're going to do, and you've kind of taken – the pathway of being a trainer for people. What was your motivation in doing that? Well, I, I didn't go into that initially. I mean, I, I when I got out, I didn't want to read military books. I didn't want to be around military people. I didn't want to see military movies. I just wanted to completely distance myself from military. So I didn't. I fell out of touch with all my military buddies and stuff, and that wasn't like a. I wasn't answering their calls or anything. It was just kind of like out of sight, out of mind. And I still kept up with a, with a few here and there. But I didn't go straight into the tactical trainer scene. Uh, instead, I went into a business. I went straight back to college and ended up teaching uh, jiu-jitsu at a uh, martial arts studio kind of while I did that. Then I ended up going into business. Uh, I got married and just started, you know, working in the business realm, not in any type of tactical setting and not in the, uh, you know, what I'm doing now capacity. Then I went on the mission field for a number of years down in Central America. And uh, so, yeah, that's Christian missions. Uh, so 
anyway, I did that, and then I came back after that and then got back in the tactical training world because still kind of staying pretty fresh up on guns and stuff and all that jazz. Uh, yeah, I fell back into my old skill set a number of years ago, and uh, the rest is history. You know, I find a lot of military people have that type of a story, whether they go into training or not. It's almost like when you leave, you have to leave all the way for a while and kind of make peace with your past. And then you can have an appreciation for it again. But I think part of it is there is just the desire to get away. But I think the other part of it is you're such a hole in your life. It's almost like grieving for the loss of a family member to death. Like, this part of me has died. I don't have this anymore, and I don't want to look at it. So, like, a lot of people, when, like, a, a loved one dies or whatever, they go to the funeral of it, they might not even look at a picture of that person for a year. They just don't want to, they don't want to, and, and men, I think, more than women, I don't want to see this right now. I'm not, I, I, I don't have this in my life, so now I have to figure out what to do without it before I can appreciate it again, if that makes sense. Yeah, it wasn't really like a conscious, it, yeah, I agree, that that sounds great, and you're speaking something that, uh, as soon as I got out, I, I wasn't really thinking about this stuff, it, it wasn't any conscious thought, I was just, You don't think about I it, it just ends, right, you know? Yeah, I just didn't want to <laughs> uh, be doing any military stuff anymore, I wanted to move on to the next objective, so to speak. And I had plans, and I had goals, and I had ambitions. You, you're and making so me think of a, I, a funny-ass story that I hadn't thought of forever, man. The old, I did hang out with a guy that I, was, I served with, but it was only because like we were like best friends, and we both got out within like 30 days of each other. And we ended up uh, renting an apartment as roommates together and his fa and here in Texas, and his family, one part of his family was in Louisiana, we ended up in Louisiana near a place, a place near Fort Polk. And I think we'd both been out of the military for, you know, a few months or whatever. And we're still wearing the military haircut. And we still, you, you know, a soldier has a look. Like, you go, yeah, that guy's a soldier. So we're, we're, we're hanging out at this bar together. And some guy comes walking up to us and just starts talking to us like he knows us and all. And he was probably like, you know, six weeks out of AIT in his permanent duty station. He started asking us, like, what we did and all. Like, oh, we're done. Oh, we're we're so done. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and today, like that guy, I'm going to really talk to him, find out about him, and, and, and like, he, there's that fraternity that's there as a fellow soldier. That moment, I didn't want to talk to that dude at all. I was like, we're no, uh, <laughs> We're finished. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. I can totally see that. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, if he had been that's broke funny. down on the side of the road or something, then we would have went out our way to help him. But talking to me in a bar like Go talk to a girl or something, dude. I, <laughs> I don't want to do this right now. <laughs> I don't want to hear your ballads of what super soldier you will become. <laughs> Thank you, know, you. As a trainer, and, and then with that military background, what, what do you say, like, kind of the best strategy to learning is? What, what is the best way for people to learn these types of skills that we're talking about today? Yeah, fantastic. So, man... One of the biggest barriers to learning is to think that you have already arrived. Uh, it's just nearly impossible to teach something to someone when they're also uh, really busy with trying to show you how much they already know, hmm. uh, competing with. Yeah, you know, so the difficulty of uh, teaching guys that are kind of former action guys is you're always competing with what 
their drill sergeant said or what they did in Fallujah or what they're, you know, kind of like, I, I get that. I'm appreciative to what you've done in the past, but here, here's a new idea. Let me just throw it out. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, whatever. But I'd like all my points to not have to contend with your biography. Can't like we just, you know, audit a skill and see how it works. So, so there's sometimes that I just ran toward and, you know, clubbed the ex-military guy because we were having to talk about that. But um, it just kind of a little bit of snobbery I remember that I, I had was when I got out of the military, I, I just felt like I had gained a certain amount of proficiency with weapon systems. And so when all of a sudden I started shooting pistol, I was very, very frustrated because I just sucked at pistols. And I thought because, you know, I'm like, hey, I can just pick up an M249 and just rock it. You know, I was very good with a saw. That meant if I can handle that, a pistol's no sweat. And a pistol is way harder than all that stuff. And they just don't, frankly, teach military guys to shoot pistols well. Similarly, they don't teach LE how to handle rifles really well. Uh, that's so, anyway, and of course there's exceptions, but in generality, I'm absolutely right. So, anyway, I had to learn pistol from the ground up, which meant I had to shut up, shelve whatever resume or whatever divine right I felt I had to, you know, pistols because I, you know, doing rifles and, and abracadabra, the universe will give me great pistol skills. I had to, you know, really, it was humbling. Humility is the most important aspect we can possibly bring to learning and education. No, I think that's, and it's a very important thing for students to be able to get in that mindset. It's it's a very, there's an old Chinese Zen uh, story about this, that the student goes to the great master teacher to learn, and but the student won't shut his hole, basically. I'm telling a Jack Spirico version of the story. It's not <laughs> quite as elegant as the, 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 the Zen story uh, in actual Chinese uh, history, but the, the, the student just won't shut his hole. So finally the, the teacher in his wisdom says, he gives him a cup and he starts pouring tea in his cup and he keeps yeah. pouring and the tea overflows the cup and the student is like, what are you doing? You know, and he says, this is you. You are this cup and you are so full that, that you come to me to learn, but there is nothing that I can give you. And for the student to, to be able to learn, no matter what they know, they need to kind of empty that cup and be open to that new way and do that new way the way that they're instructed and then, yeah, like, okay, you can do the Jeet Kune Do thing, right? The Bruce Lee thing, like, take what is useful. But first you have to actually take it fully to determine whether it's useful to you. And I find a lot of things you learn, you don't, you're not really fond of it at the time you learn it. But then later on as you integrate it, it becomes pretty solid. And I guess, like, the thing I took from the military was the concept of, you know, the way they train you in the military is they show it to you, you do it, then you teach it back. And then that seems like one of yeah. the, like, like that actually creates mastery of the skill set is to be able to, it, we learn more by teaching than we do by doing or hearing or seeing, but we have to do, hear, and see, and yeah. then we can teach. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. And, you know, I had a funny image. I've heard the, you know, Chinese proverb with the teacup before. I like it enough. I'm like, yeah, rock on, say that one again. But I saw, like, a lot of folks are just so hard to teach. It, 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 it'd be silly to use the teacup analogy. Instead, you should take some of these arrogant people into a public restroom and just keep <laughs> reflushing and overflowing <laughs> toilet filled with urine and crap and be like, this is you. You're full of crap. <laughs> just full of it. 
Shut up. Listen the, to me. The Do what I say analogy. and then judge. We then have, judge. We have replaced the teacup analogy with the diaper analogy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, you know, just it, it can be it, it, what we're talking about isn't specific to training or shooting or tactics. It, it's just general life wisdom of, hey, you know, oh, Learn with an open mind. Practice humility. Recognize you don't have all the answers. Other opinions are not scary ones. Just hear them out with, you know, uh, and look for their equity with patience. And that, that's a good thing. In the in our world of the tactical world, it, you know, it's just kind of all alphas. And so the idea of humility is far less often encountered. And a lot of people are just kind of putting on airs. And so it can be really antithetical in the training process to make any, anyway, so. No, there's analogies everywhere. Software is a great example of that. I, I've been trying to teach myself uh, Final Cut on, on a Mac, and I'm very experienced with edi editing with Sony Vegas. And do you think the Mac cares what Sony Vegas does? No. But see, the software is it, it, not, not emotional. It doesn't care that you don't like it, right? Uh, and I think there is a lot of that. And I think you're right. In military circles, law enforcement circles, guys in general, if they're any kind of that alpha personality, it's very difficult to to have that humility. But one cannot be an effective student if one doesn't have some humility in it. And I, it's one of those things. I think the older you get, the more willing. So, like, the guy that really knows his shit is the one that has the most capacity for humility. Because the, the more you learn, the more you realize what you don't know. Yeah. And what your role is, too, uh, right? Like, if you go to somebody as an instructor, then then shut up and learn. I, I don't – but I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, in this, with the military mindset and, and where you're coming from, what are your thoughts on the current political climate in the United States and the world? I mean, it seems like we're in a – some ways a bigger mess than we've ever been, and in some ways – we're further along at the same time. It's it's a really weird state to be in. Oh, man. Yeah, I'd say your viewpoint just at that is a little bit more optimistic than mine, which means I like your viewpoint more. I don't like <laughs> being Debbie Downer. And here's, here's another thing. I was just about I was mulling over making a YouTube video on this in and of itself. Here's, here's the fact of the matter. I don't want to be political. I don't want to do that. I want to be philosophical in a lot, but I don't want, I just don't want to engage in politics. It's very confusing. It's very difficult. It's nuanced. I see a lot going on. And in the world of politics, I feel like to even have an inkling of what was really going on, you'd have to live on Capitol Hill and be completely immersed in it as if it was your job, because right now we have such different media outlets saying such different messages with such different presuppositional worldviews that I feel like I have to choose constantly be between being misinformed and uninformed. <laughs> all right. So it's like you, you listen to a news story. I'm like, all right, how much of this is propaganda? How much of this actually happened? Uh, what, what, why is this story being covered and not a hundred other stories which may be more important? So they're not only choosing what I'm seeing, but they're kind of, the media gets to decide what America's going to care about. You know, and it, it's not just what they're covering, it's what they're not covering and what they should be covering. And then the propaganda and the, the, the bent that they, and the twisting of facts or manipulating them. I don't know. I'm, I'm not, 
um, I don't really have anything concrete. A lot of these are just my feelings. But it, a lot of times, suffice it to say, when I deal with the political questions here, I just am not very trusting of the information that I hear. And I think a lot of Americans uh, are, are kind of in the same boat. And so because I'm always having to choose between uninformed and misinformed, a lot of times that's, that's manifested itself in personal political apathy, where I'm just kind of like, I'm busy. Uh, I'm I'm busy. I I don't know. Here, yay for the Constitution. Now, leave me alone. I, I remember asking my wrestling coach uh, something. This was, I mean, many, many years ago. Uh, but I'd uh, gotten out of high school. I'd come back, and I'm like, hey, what do you think about such and such candidate? And I, I love this man. He ended up um, just kind of brushing me off and saying, ah, they're just all a bunch of crooks and liars. And I thought, <laughs> hey, that's really unfair. You curmudgeon, way to dodge my question. But man, everyone just seems to be a bunch of crooks and liars. I know there's some, there's a few uh, good eggs out there, but I, I don't know. I, I think I'm just mistrusting. And now in the political climate where I am pretty apolitical, you know, I, I'm not inclined to politics, I feel like it's become such a loud question that it's forcing me to engage because it's encroaching into every single level now of every American's life, and, and in the world scene as well. For instance, our first and second amendments are under massive, full-scale attack. We're losing our first and second amendment right now, in my feeling. No, uh, and I that agree. is devastating, which means if, if that's true, no one can afford to sit on the sidelines of po politics, and until... We ensure that the very fabric of our society, the foundation which all of us rest on, work on, play on, raise our children on, until that's addressed, we can't really deal with any other questions. Suffice it to say, I can't afford political apathy anymore when my First and Second Amendments are under attack. Well, I, I operate under what I call proactive apathy. I, I am completely apathetic to anything that is outside of my, my control. If I cannot extend influence over it, it does not qualify for my time or consideration because I get yeah. nothing out of that. It's the old Stephen Covey thing, your circle of influence and concern. I completely agree with yeah. you about the, the First and Second Amendment thing, and it's, 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 it's sad and tragic that the people attacking the First Amendment and then using the First Amendment to attack the, the, the Second Amendment, or using the First Amendment to call for, you know, the, basically the abolition of both. They, they, they stand yeah. and they, they speak from a standpoint of, well, we have our freedom of speech and our rights and all, but we don't want others to have them. And it is, uh, it is a trying time for the country in, in that respect, but I, I think that if you're going to be political, in my opinion, then you pick a thing. And you pick that thing and you go after that thing with everything like a pit bull. Because if you spread out, you'll, yeah. you'll have zero influence. And it is a, it's a very twisted time. When I say that in some ways we're better off, I think I mean between if you get out of that, that space and you actually talk to people instead of look at people on Facebook calling each other horrible things, people actually tend to be in a lot more alignment than you'd think. And it's these, these useful idiots that the establishment is using yeah. as mouthpieces that create this illusion that the country wants complete obliteration. My fear is that they they could win that fight if we're not careful. Yeah, 
you know, without a question. It, it, it is such a self-defeating, you know, paradox here that, that's going on that they're using their First Amendment to attack the First Amendment. But uh, all of it just makes me feel like I'm taking crazy pills and looking at this, you know, fictitious, dysutopian 1984 George L. Orwell work, thinking, looking around and being like, he never could have imagined how prophetic he was. Big Brother has far more access to everything. And so just the elimination of uh, everything from privacy to uh, everyone controlling each other's speech. Uh, there's certain things I just cannot say. There's, uh, there's opinions that I just am not allowed to have. I can't have those thoughts. And a lot of times the Petri dish where all this crap is grown is in our formal institutions, our universities, where some ideas are welcome and others aren't, which is really the place where intellectualism should be fostered is becoming the most anti-intellectual place in, in, in the Western world. Well, yeah, there were the students recently that got up and walked out and were outraged uh, at a discussion at Penn State University because a biologist said there was a clear difference between male and female, which is not a statement of opinion. I'm sorry, that is a statement of fact, right? I mean, there's well, the, especially in a biological context, right? That's the guy is a biologist, a biology professor, right? Yeah, talking he, about chromosomes. Yeah, if that hurts your feelings. Yeah, then, you then your feelings are hurt. That's okay. <laughs> you don't have a constitutional right to not have your feelings hurt. No, no. Nor do you have a constitutionally protected right against your feelings being hurt. You have no, no rights whatsoever to not be offended or have your feelings hurt. But we're living in a society that, and like you said about like giving up freedoms. There's this this, this picture meme thing going around. It's so spot on, it's scary, and it's like these two people in a black and white photo, and then one's put her hand over the phone, and she says to the other one something like, I better not say that, or the government might wiretap us. And then the next one, there's this chick, and she's in a kitchen, and it's clearly modern times and all, and she's cooking, and it says, hey, wiretap, can you get me a recipe for whatever it is she's cooking? And it's, it's kind of like that's the society that we're living in today. Like, people are volunteer. Like, the screen in 1984 was this thing that they installed in your, your house and in your workplace, and it had to be on all the time. And the screen now, you carry it around in your pocket, and people won't put it away. And you go out to a restaurant, and you see people that are obviously like a couple, and they're there together. It's supposed to be on a date, and both of them are on the phone. You know, and you're like, what Which the hell? Which is okay if they're Skyping each other. Yeah. A lot of them are Skyping each other because we're afraid to look people in the face anymore. Yeah. So, uh, you know, they're, they're talking to each other. Don't worry. Don't give up on people yet. How, how, how do you think we can make a difference in all this in both kind of the micro and the macro levels? I'm, I'm sorry. I missed the first part of that. I'm that's still okay. laughing at what you said. I'll no, that's okay. Part. No, and all, and all of this craziness, like how do you think we as people – uh, especially, you know, kind of coming from the warrior mindset, like how can we make a difference at the micro and the macro levels in, in this stuff? How do we actually have some level of influence and in what the hell's going on around us? Hmm. Yeah, great question. Uh, and I love that you went there immediately. Like, hey, here's the problem. Well, what in the world do we do about it? Other than just gripe about it at infinitum. And there's so many gripes, it'd be so easy for us to stay right there the whole time. I think in um, right now the country is split. So, you know, just such a divisive split uh, that it's really hard for people on either side to even hear the other person's argument. 
I think we've become completely socially inept at the uh, personal level, and it's kind of taken on a, a, a tribalistic, you know, kind of way where we rally around our folks and then we all yell together and uh, we don't really listen to the other side. So I think just approaching people of different mindsets, not on Facebook, you're not solving any great socio-political problems on Facebook ever. Think, hey, listeners, think about last the last time you wanted to stick it to someone on Facebook or win an argument on Facebook. You've never won an argument on Facebook. And here's a little here, here's, here's a little uh, tip for you. You never will. You're not winning great battles on Facebook. Doesn't mean we shouldn't engage in social media stuff to put our opinions forth. But I think asking questions rather than making stabbing points. I, I think uh, reaching out and, and, uh, and you know respect and courtesy at the personal level. I, I don't think this is even an option in, in a lot of the political. Uh, thing because it's become such a uh, just mud-slinging campaign on each side that it's all just already at the area of critical mass, mutually assured destruction that, uh, yeah, it's hard. But at the personal level, with your liberal neighbors or your, you know, conservative, you know, friends or who, whatever side you're on and whatever side you're uh, just communicating to, be nice to them. Let them know you like them and that it is okay to have different views and you can just kind of talk about them and don't make a statement that someone would be like, you're wrong or you're an idiot. That stuff's not helpful. That tears down. That closes debate and makes everyone very upset and angry. You don't change any mind, anyone's mind like that. And so instead, just kind of being nice and asking questions and being courteous and respectful, I think at the micro level, it, it starts there. Be a decent human being again. Um, even if they're an idiot, even if they're wrong, be nice, you big idiot. You're not advancing our cause. A lot of times we have to make a decision whether we want to make a point to, you know, stick it to them and be like, yeah, that can feel cathartic and we feel like a million bucks and our whole side stands up like it's a big pepper alley and cheers us on and be like, way to go, John, you stuck it to them. But it doesn't change anyone's mind on the other side. Uh, you know, so you have to choose between making a point and making a principled stand or influencing somebody. Be nice. Quit being a jerk. So at the personal level, I think that's the way to go. I think one of the problems that especially the right has right now on the, the Second Amendment issue is the absolute level of ignorance on the side making the argument against firearms. It's, and you notice I didn't say stupidity, I said ignorance, but the level of ignorance of the anti-gun average person in the country about guns is unbelievable. But you're right, you're not yeah. going to make that point with that alpha attitude and, and, and shoving it in, it's more on the one-on-one -on -one issue because I can't tell you how many people I've had the conversation with that they honestly believe an assault rifle, whatever the hell that is today because they keep changing the definition of it, is more powerful than you know what I hunt deer with. And, and one of the things I started doing, especially when I, when I used to have a job, at least in the state of Texas, you can walk around with ammunition in your pocket, you're okay. I started carrying around a two two three round on a thirty oh six round. And handing it to people yeah. like that, and going, well, which one of those do you think is more, po you know, powerful? Well, yeah, this that's one, awesome. that's right? And, and I go, that's the most popular gear round in America. 
That, that's the most yeah. popular deer route in America. That other one, that's the evil 5.56.223 that, you know, the governor of New York says no one needs to shoot a deer out, right? And so the round which shall not be named. Right, you know, that it's like, that's the, this material thing, it's real. And I'm, I'm sure you saw the thing go on with the CNN thing on the, the assault rifle with the, the, the supposed general. I don't know what this guy was a general of. Maybe the Salvation Army or something. But no way. Yes. <laughs> right? He's like, now I'm going to fire it on full semi-automatic. And I'm like, oh, my God. And, and the thing yeah. is that because there's such a lack of knowledge, people believe this stuff. You know, this is the same gun really? that, that our soldiers used in Afghanistan. Uh, how do you think the average line troop would react if, if their M4s were taken away and they were given Colt AR-15s in return? Do you think they'd say, oh, this is the same, it's okay? I mean, it, it, is a, it is a nonsensical argument, but it's very difficult because when you try to educate that person, you find that they don't want to know facts. They just don't want guns because they don't like guns. And, you know, I think we need to get more people to the range. I think that's the biggest way to make the, the, the difference there. Because you see these people saying, well, I've shotguns, and you're like, no, you haven't. <laughs> no, sorry, no, you yeah. haven't. The, uh, the BB gun you shot at the fair when you were seven, that doesn't count. I'm, I'm sorry, you know. It, it, but it's very difficult, yeah. you know. Um, on, the, on another yeah. note, like, how, how do you find a way to keep a balance? I, like you, I, 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 I find myself to be a very intellectual person. I'm well-read. Um, I, I think I'm far more that today than I was, you know, at 25 or 30. Um, but there's still that warrior. There's still that, you know, they use the word triggered. They don't know what it means, man. There is a point that you can yeah. trigger that warrior. And how do you, how do you in your life try to maintain that balance uh, between those two people? The, you know, I guess there's another parable there. I'll say for later. But you know, there's the that wolf that's inside of you versus maybe the uh, little bit more calm sheepdog. Yeah, no, very good. Well, there's the there's the physical aspect where I'm working on you know my own aggression training, and that's you know uh, that, that has a martial artsish feel, that has a gun fightingish feel, that scenario based training, that's force on force engagements, that's uh, getting my uh, Bob boxing uh, you know partner in the garage and imagining different scenarios, and then just laying waste and practicing all kinds of stuff like that. That's uh, out in public, even when I'm out and about hanging out with the family. I'm engaging in all these kind of uh, thought experience, uh, experience, my what-if scenario, hey, what if a guy jumps up right here, you know, kind of that silly type stuff that really does ha add a, a lot so that I'm always imagining these just different scenarios. And then I'm training my pistol and rifle skills, and I'm working on my room-clearing tactics, and so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. As long as I'm just kind of poking around in that world, uh, you can keep your mind and your body sharp. Uh, and then there's the other kind of underlying philosophical and theological stuff, which is ever so much important as the latter, or I mean the former, uh, and perhaps even more so. Uh, I, I want to make sure that I'm loving my kids and my wife really well and and my country, and my, you know, and my Jesus, and you know, that kind of idea that I want to be a good protector. And uh, I think the most amazing protectors, the ones who have that switch, uh, you know, uh, you're practicing the physical side, but you also have this kind of side that I'm talking about, the, the, some of the most capable protectors 
uh, are the ones that have mastered fear and they are equipped with purpose and passion and, and having that, you know, those great loves that you want to stand up and fight for. The will to fight is what I'm talking about. Uh, that, you know, kind of like not my kids. Uh, I think about Aaron Fees, the assistant coach uh, down in the uh, Texas, uh, you know, shooting. It was the Texas shooting, right? Uh, Aaron Fees, uh, anyway, didn't have a gun or anything, but it just basically shielded a bunch of kids and he got shot up and a whole bunch of, you know, just, I think about that, he didn't have a firearm, but that was a lover of kids right there and he just loved his kids unto death and, you know, I think perfect love casts out all fear, like First John, I think, 5 of the Bible, perfect love casts out all fear and mastering fear and being willing to sacrifice and die for someone else and be willing to kill. All those things are huge emotional, psychological barriers. Uh, and so working on that stuff, the poet aspect is more important than the warrior, but you need to work both. Definitely. I mean, like, so I had a recent experience that if I would have happened 15 years ago, I probably would have clotheslined the guy from the blind side, but I was able to avoid conflict and send the message. I'm, I was coming out to get my hair cut, and a guy came ripping through parking lot, almost hit a lady with a baby in her arms, just driving like an idiot. And then he rips into the parking lot, gets out, and starts yelling at her like she did something wrong. And you just you just don't do that. I'm sorry, you know that's that is out of line on so many. You, there's a lot of lines that's across, and all of them are wrong. And again, 15 years ago, I probably just blind shot him in the temple and shut him up. But uh, I yelled at him. I said, "Hey." And he didn't hear me. And I said, because hey, he was so busy screaming at this lady. The second time I said, hey, he turned around. And I said, did you know speeding in parking lots and yelling at women is the fourth leading cause of getting your ass kicked in the state of Texas? <laughs> and he evaluated the situation. And he looked like he, could, he was about my size. It, you know, it could have gone either way if it went physical, which I prefer it not to, especially carrying. Um, and, uh, but I think it kind of pulled him out of the moment long enough to realize what a wang he was being. And his response was, no, I did not know that. He turned around and went to the store. That was probably a better way to handle it. Because there was there was a certain amount of force necessary in that situation. Because when the guy's being violent toward a woman that he doesn't even know, yeah. he, need, he needs to know there could be a consequence to it. But you also, like, de-escalation sometimes can be done through humor. And I think, like, learning that yeah. balance is difficult and it takes time. Maybe another thing, like, a lot of this, I think, like, the problems we're having with kids today and, and like... They're wusses, but they're violent. It's weird, right? And there was a study done about elephants in Africa after all the ivory hunting stopped, but all the old bulls were dead. And the young bulls, as the herd started to rebuild, you know, like teenage elephants basically are big animals. And they were going off in bachelor herds, and they were like going into villages and just slaughtering people. And this had never had No one had ever remembered this kind of thing happening. It would be the occasional rogue or whatever, but this wasn't a thing. And, and then eventually it dissipated and stopped as there were older bulls. And what they figured out was that the elephants would separate at times of the year and go into bachelor herds. That was always a thing. But when there were no old elephants with the young to basically keep their, 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 their shit in check, they would get really violent. And as the older uh, patriarchs returned, this subsided. And I think like well, that's a part of the problem we have. There's not enough of that male influence to teach that kind of, okay, yeah, there might be a time for violence, but let's let's look at other ways to deal with the situation, and let's make sure we're prepared for that violent situation, that violent conflict, 
But let's not do it unless we have to. Yeah. So no, I'm going to totally be on it. Um. One of the other things we have a problem with right now is we have a lot of veterans coming back with PTSD at various levels. What are some of the things that you think we can do to help people transition, help our, our veterans transition back to civilian life? I don't consider my struggles transitioning back as in any way PTSD. It was just a matter of this is not the way things are anymore. So that gives you an understanding of what it can be like for somebody that is having flashbacks or can't relax or, you know, can't trust or things like that. And, you know, what, what what do you think we need to do to help those guys? I think a lot of folks are misdiagnosed and I'm obviously no, you know, professional psychologist here, but I'm definitely standing on some of their shoulders and some of what I've read and, what some of these organizations do, we, we have a lot of knowledge on PTSD now, and it's available for the general public. And you know, I've walked through some of this as well, being clinically diagnosed, and I don't want to make too much of that because I think it can be overdiagnosed at the same time. Of like, It's kind of like the um, civilian's Adderall. It's PTSD. Everyone's got it now. Uh, but um, anyway, th- there's some extreme cases, some soldiers out there that literally they, they need some professional help. You're not going to get better on your own. You just hide a wound because you're tough, and and you think strength is hiding your problems, suffering alone until eventually, you know, something happens. If you're getting worse, you know, and you don't know what to do about that, you you may need some actual help. There's some amazing organizations out there. The one that springs to mind is Warrior's Heart, uh, uh, ex-operator Tom Spooner, who was one of the co-founders of it, Warrior's Heart. And that's a really, really cool organization. It's not just throwing money at a problem. You're going to connect with actual veterans. And uh, this, this is not just a military thing. This is LE. This is EMS. It's anybody that's kind of gone through those, uh, is dealing with PTSD. And, and there's a big emphasis on addiction type stuff as well. So there's that piece. Now, to the other piece that, that is, going to kind of deal with the other stuff is already something that you just hit on, and that has more to do with so societal integration and next purpose. They, they, you know, you, you identify for so long of what your identity is, is you're a military person. You kill terrorists or something. And so when all of a sudden you're not doing that anymore, and that's who you are, you have a crisis of identity. And so this is why a lot of old vets just kind of are perpetually reliving their glory days. They never really moved on. They never really did anything else. And that's not okay. You, you, you got to move on. You got to find your next objective, guys. You can't just be stagnant. You can't be looking back. You can't even be looking at present. You need to look to tomorrow. What's your next goal? What's your next mission? And then you need to integrate into, you know, some type of, Social constructs. Church was my biggest one. Christian church, you know, and and that provided an amazing societal network that really, you know, ministered to me. They loved me. They accepted me. They brought me in. That was not a weakness of mine. It's not like, you know, that that's just human nature. You can take the most hardened criminal ever, put them in um, solitary confinement, and they're going to go crazy nuts. You know, Tom Hanks alone on the island is going to be talking to a volleyball before long because you lose your mind without people. And here you are, you, you isolate yourself away from, you know, the so- social 
you know, construct you have in the military, and you're going to punish everyone else of your company because they don't happen to see the world the same way that you do and didn't live your experiences. So, you know, you and Jim Beam hang out alone. You don't integrate into any society. You go nuts. Nobody's able to minister to you or help you in any way. And, uh, you don't really move on to the next objective. And, I mean, of course you're going to get – you will guarantee get worse and worse and worse. But those things right there aren't necessarily your wounds were so bad that you can't heal. It's that you had a you had a wound, but then you didn't take care of it. You you hid it away, and uh, you know whatever kind of dwells in darkness festers kind of thing. So uh, I think we need people, and I think we need new goals, and I think a lot of our PTSD problems are really those type problems. No, I, I agree with that. And I think that, like, one of the things I think that makes it difficult on soldiers today, and I think this really began around the Vietnam era, is if you compare the reintroduction of soldiers from World War II to today, it looks very different in the success rate. And in many ways, those guys who fought World War II saw things people like you and I can't even imagine because of the sheer numbers and the hamburger you know, nature of the war and these beach landings and stuff like that. And yet they came home and used their GI Bill and got a job and went off and worked for 20 years. And, I mean, there were people that had, I think maybe it wasn't as well known back then when there were problems. But in general, they were way more successful at reintegration, I think, than a lot of combat soldiers are today. But I think part of it was, well, how do you get home? So by the time we got to Vietnam, when a guy was discharged, he got on a plane, and 72 hours later, he's back on the block. Right, as I used to say, back on the block, yeah. and he's done. Where in World War II yeah. and prior wars, when you were overseas, you got on a boat, and for three months you were surrounded by men that understood what you went through, and it was it was it was over, but you were still another three months with people that understood, and you talked about what it was going to be like, and you decompressed with each other. And I'm not suggesting that everybody that comes home from a combat theater now maybe needs to, to do three months on a ship, but you know maybe they need to do some sort of a time where it is that decompression mode. You know you're done, and you're with people that were with you there, because that seems to be, to me, the one thing I can put my finger on and say what changed and when did it change, and that that's the one thing. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, a friend of mine, uh, Dave Grossman, who wrote on combat, on killing, amazing dude, war psychologist. Uh, yeah, incredible. But he talked about, you know, some of those problems with Vietnam with soldiers coming home kind of piecemeal, one at a time, instead of kind of deploying a unit and bringing a unit home. So you have that uh, gearing up, you, then you have the experience, then you have the kind of after-action review and the, you know, uh, the, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Um Decompression time—that's not the right word. The debrief type time, you know that that kind of stuff, where you all kind of get to come back together and rally around the mission and talk about what happened. Y'all get to kind of come home, uh, and instead, the the Vietnam person kind of went there, didn't really have clear objectives, saw a lot of horror didn't see a lot of success, and then just kind of like they went there alone, they came back alone, and then they came back to a country that hated them. And I think that that's what I could – I think I can go to war and do horrible things and see horrible things. I think I could come back, uh, you know, and 
I, I think I, I think I could deal with war, but I I don't know how well I could deal with sacrificing and have my own country that I felt like I was fighting for hate me for it. Uh, and, and so I mean the 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 mind screw that that would be is probably something I would never quite recover from, and I think many Vietnam vets don't. And so I think what was happening was a political war that was engaged against the entire Vietnam conflict, and it ended up taking it, uh, it, it the real person, people that it ended up hurting was the soldiers, because if you're against the Vietnam War, you're against the soldiers that are fighting it. And those guys aren't the, they're not the chess masters, they're the pawns. They're just, they were doing what I was doing, of like we were military people and we're the mission and we go out and do the mission, but, you know, they were hated. And, uh, you know, I, I think, I, I I have this great, great sympathy and a great respect uh, for the Vietnam veterans, specifically more than any other war, more than World War II, more than, you know, more than the wars that I fought in for the Vietnam person, because they really got screwed over in a way that, that nobody else ever had. That was a harder war. And uh, I, I, I think that we broke their hearts. Uh, I think something we did something horrible to the Vietnam veterans. And many of them never asked to go on top of it. So on, on top of everything right. you just said, probably by the wars and especially the last few years of it, you know, 60, 70 percent of people deployed were draftees. Who, 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 you know, you, I didn't want to go. They made me go. I did my duty. I did what I was supposed to do. I stood up for everything. And I come home and I get spit on and called a baby killer. You know, I mean, that's that, yeah. you, you know, you're dead on there. But I also think you, you hit on something too that kind of goes with what I said, which is in prior wars, men went to war together and they came home together. Where by the time we got to Vietnam, we got to this thing where men went to war together and came home individually. So it's not just a timing thing there. It's that I'm home. Those guys are still there. And that that really was kind of the first war. Unless you were you left because you were injured or whatever. I mean, that's not how past wars work. You deployed and you fought to victory, and then you left as a unit where you didn't have to think about, hey, well, I'm here eating a hoagie at my own stomping ground. I'm trying to do my life. Tom and Bill are getting shot; their asses shot at right now. You know, that's and that's still the case today. So. Um, tell us a little about Warrior Poet Society. What exactly do y'all do, and uh, and 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 how people can learn more about it, what have you? Well, thanks, man. Yeah. So, uh, first off, if you want to find us, a lot of the conversations that we're having right now, and just kind of the Warrior Poet ethos, that's kind of the base and the foundation of the channel. We're normal people. Uh, we want to be more skilled in our ability to protect others. Uh, and we're deep thinkers, you know. You, you know you're a warrior poet when you kind of live for higher purpose. Uh, you're willing to sacrifice in the defense of others. That, that's kind of the deal. Uh, and so we represent a movement, a kind of a – I think it, there's a huge amount of people out there, and I can feel isolated some in the past and just looking at an industry and feeling like, yeah, I don't really fit in that. And it, it ends up being that the movement – there's more people like me than I thought. <laughs> uh, you know, Jack, you sound like me, and I sound like you in, in a way. We have a similar ethic, I think, which is really cool. Uh, that's what the Warrior Poet Society is, and uh, we kind of rally in around our Instagram account. Our YouTube is the biggest one, unless they uh, kick us off because there's a uh, 
Yeah, the social media overlords are not excited about my worldview. Um, and uh, anyway, but we're on YouTube and have a pretty good following right there on YouTube, uh, Instagram, uh, Facebook. Uh, so uh, that's the best things. And also uh, we have a website where we can rally as well. So it, we're pretty easy to find if you type in Warrior Poet Society anywhere in the Internet or in any of those uh, social media platforms I mentioned. You'll find us right away. Or you can type in my name. I'm John Lovell. John Lovell. If you type me in anywhere in the Internet, it's going to pop something up. And just make sure you subscribe to whatever uh, whatever you want to find your content. We talk about all kinds of stuff. So uh, that's where you go. All right, John. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us today and taking time to, uh, to share your story and your thoughts on, on things that are going on in the world. And uh, hopefully people will get by your site and maybe some people will take you up on some of that training you provide. Well, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Well, a great interview with a great guy. As we wrap up today, I want to remind you one of the ways you can help support our show and everything that we do in the survival podcast community and extended communities is by doing your online shopping where? tspaz.com. All you got to do, you're going to shop online. Go to tspaz.com first. It's that simple. Take a look at the reviews we do, but any shopping you do from that point on, you know, you help support the survival podcast and the work we do. And uh, I've got a uh, product for review for you today. We talked about it recently in a podcast, so I figured it's time to bring it back around as a featured product. I hadn't had it on, uh, up for like about almost two years. It's Firmax Yeast Nutrient, and this is for any of you guys doing, you know, wines, beers, meads, ciders, any of that stuff. It just helps get a more complete, full fermentation. And I, I talk about some of the things in the review that's up today for you to take a look at like some of the new yeast nutrients like Ferment O and Ferment K and how a lot of mead makers especially have switched over to them and how I tried them and I just didn't get any significant difference in results. I also talk about kind of my once-and-done method of feeding my uh, fermentations with uh, yeast nutrient that I do right at the onset of making it and why I do it that way and the staggered feeding of a ferment and how that's done by other people and why it does work better in certain situations, but not really in all. So if you want to be a better mead maker, wine maker, beer maker, etc., if you just want that uh, pure sugar that you are fermenting to make fuel, in big air quotes, out of, uh, to ferment faster and get more well-attenuated, fuller fermentations, feed your yeast. Feed them Firmax Yeast Nutrient, and you can learn all about that at survivalpodcast.com or tspaz.com. Remember, whenever you shop online through tspaz, you do help the survival podcast and the work that we do. That brings us to our song of the day. This is a unique song. It's uh, by somebody named Re, uh, Rhiannon Giddens, and the song is called Julie. And this song's written on a, the, an album. The entire album is about the Civil War. It kind of fits in today's discussions. Uh, from the perspective of slaves, but not just slaves, but female slaves. And in this particular song... The, the, the concept that's going on is the the owner of the house, she calls mistress, right? Uh, Julie is the slave, and, and, and the house is about to be overrun by Union troops. And the mistress of the house wants Julie to run away with her or to guard her chest of gold treasure and tell the troops that it's hers so they won't take it away. And basically, Julie tells her mistress to go blow it out her ass. That's a, that's a nice way, that's a more direct way to put it. But she says she won't run, and she's happy that the soldiers are there. And the mistress tries to tell her that if you, if you don't 
you know, run away and then come back later, you're going to have to leave this house and everything that you know, as though she's doing her some kind of a favor by taking care of her. She basically says, I'm not interested in that. And uh, eventually, talking about that trunk, she here's the lines actually in the song. Julie, oh Julie, won't you lie if they find that trunk of gold by my side? Julie, oh Julie, you tell them men that trunk of gold is yours, my friend. And Julie responds, mistress, oh mistress, I won't lie if they find that trunk of gold by your side. Mistress, oh mistress, that trunk of gold is what you got when my children you sold. And the lady that wrote this, uh, again, this Rhiannon Giddens, so that she read a book and it talked about this entire concept of the slave's perspective during the war and how most of what's been written about that from that perspective even focuses on the men, that the women of the time that were slaves had no agency even when somebody took a look at their side of things and it prevents it from that side. Um, this is one of those things where I have mixed emotions about this. One, I think we should deeply look into all these horrible things that happened and actually have a full understanding of them. On the other side, when I hear especially young African Americans today use this type of thing as an excuse for where they are today, I have no sympathy whatsoever. The, 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 the opportunities available to people in this country today exceed the opportunities available to people in any country today, regardless of your race, your age, your sexual orientation, anything. I mean, there, there is no place in the world today that you have more opportunity to make something of yourself than the United States of America. And, and, and I know this will be taken wrong, but in many ways, the people of color that are here today that, that can trace their roots to slavery are better off than their, their relatives that were never taken into slavery and are still in some of these other countries. That's not saying that what happened was okay or right or should be given a pass in any way, shape, or form. That is to say that we have all come in our family lineage to where we are at some point in our history through massive hardship. There is almost no person walking around today that if we trace back where we come from far enough, we won't find hardship. My family came to the Ukraine via Poland because they were persecuted as Jews in the 1600s, as I've done enough research to track down that side of my family. And then fled Ukraine to Romania and from Romania to the United States. And I won't go into it deeply, but there's a lot of screwed up crap in there. And, and all that stuff, the Ukraine to Romania to the United States, that all happened way after Civil War was over. And it, it doesn't make sense for me to, to, to blame any of my hardships in my life on my past. My life is my life to walk. And I think we need to balance an appreciation for the horrors and the good of the past with a realization of who and where we are today. But that doesn't... See, and the, the problem I find with many people, though, is because what I just said is true. They want to not look at the past. I don't think that's okay either. We need to look at the past. We need to be honest about the past. And those things from the past do have some impact on people today. I mentioned my own family. This is why I grew up in a poor coal mining family. Because that first generation of immigrants, my grandparents, when they came here, that's what they could do, was mine coal. That's what they could do. That was it. And there were only certain places that would even have them. So there is a reality 
to where we are today because of our past. But there's also the reality that every step we take forward is ours to take and ours to take alone. The choices we make have consequences. This is the big thing about history and why I like the fact that we added it you know, a couple years ago to the show. If we're going to look back at our history and say that some of the bad and the good of what we have today is because of the choices made by our family and those around them in the past, then we have to acknowledge our responsibility for making the right choices and taking the right steps for our future. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Leaving here, I'm leaving here.